And welcome, my friends, to the Generations Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you today. And we have a passion for the reformation of the family, a biblical reformation of family, but also the biblical reformation of church in both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. What is wrong with us? Where do we need to be growing Where do we need our minds renewed and transformed according to the will of God? Uh, We don't want to be conformed to this world, but be transformed according to God's word, God's will. So there's this desire, this, this, this crying desire in our hearts for a reformation of thought and life. And I hope that our listeners can resonate to that. I I hope you're not saying, well, I'm so glad that we're, in a perfected state, and there's no further perfection of mind or life needed for me or my friends. No, no, we are in desperate need of revival and reformation within the church. And today's Christianity is fixated on emotionalism, pageantry, a softy uh, worship experience aimed to make you sway your hips for Jesus. Uh, the, the, The church in a very real way has become effeminate and delicate. But what is this? Is this real Christianity? Does this reflect the biblical Christ? Was Jesus feminine, androgynous, or soft? Did he look like the chosen Jesus, which we've addressed on the program recently? There's a short book out called The Manliness of Christ. Dale Partridge is the author of the book, and he's also pastor elder at Sedona, Arizona Church. He's a founder of relearn.org. And Dale joins me now on the Generations Broadcast. Dale Partridge, welcome to the Generations Broadcast, my friend. Hey, Kevin. I'm excited to be here and chat with you about the manliness of Christ. Yeah. Um, you know, we like to ask the question, what's wrong with the church? What's wrong with us? And where do we need to reform? It's a legitimate question, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, I think that, you know, Reformation, which is the coming back to the scriptures as authoritative and the central means by which we determine what is right and wrong for church practice, Christian life. And uh, we seem to be as a church often looking to the world for direction. Um, And this is exactly what's happened over the last several decades that we've had the church look to the world uh, for how it operated, and that's yeah. why we yeah. created the church as it is. Um, there's mm-hmm. an old quote that says, uh, when the Greeks got the gospel, they turned it into a philosophy. When the Europeans got the gospel, they turned it into a culture. When the Americans got the gospel, they turned it into a business. And this was essentially what we saw. We saw uh, an absolute shift of the... Uh, the church seeking the world's approval, the world's ways. And yeah, we need to get back to reformation and we need to get back to obviously the reformation of the church, but also the reformation of the family. Um, And it all starts with how we view Christ. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and that's really the the heart of this book. Yeah. I want to go there. Just, you know, we have asked the question, especially in light of the third season of the chosen, which, you know, it's outrageously popular among evangelicals, Catholics and Mormons. So it turns out, uh, but we've asked the question, will the real Jesus please stand up? And we, we get the wrong Jesus. How does that happen? Is that picking and choosing? 
scripture and, and just kind of concocting a preconceived idea of what Jesus would be in our own minds and then imposing that on scripture? Yeah, I think there's a fascinating discussion there because um, essentially what happened is we we want a Jesus that we like, um, that doesn't oppose our flesh and our fleshly desires. And so what's happened is we've adopted caricatures of Jesus. Um, for example, you know, the Roman Catholic Jesus with his eyebrows tweezed and blush on his cheeks um, seems to be a pretty common Jesus. Uh, there's there's a, a big movement as emotionalism has taken root in American Christianity. We've seen this um, this desire for a soft Jesus, uh, this uh, you know therapist Jesus that comes and is merely the gentle and lowly lamb. Uh, Dane Ortland actually wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly, and you better believe that it sold thousands upon thousands of copies because it showcased the 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 soft side of Jesus. Now the reality is is that that book it's not false. The problem is is it's one dimensional and it doesn't show the other side of Christ. And so this was really the reason I wrote the manliness of Christ is because I wanted to look at all of the masculine attributes of Jesus and highlight them because we have such an effeminate church and uh, right now the church is obviously highly female. Um, we don't even realize how feminine our church activities and our church programs are. Our men's meetings are just women's meetings, you know, uh, just redefined for men. <laughs> it's there, there's so much going on there. Now, when you win, when you win the men, you win the women. This is. Uh, statistically proven. This is philosophically proven. This is scripturally proven. When you win the men, you win the women. Uh, When you win the women, you don't win the men. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I started noticing is this rejection of Christianity because Christ had become effeminate in the eyes of culture. And as a seminary student and uh, I did five, almost six years of seminary. And uh, as a pastor, I I knew that Christ is not effeminate. Uh, He's anything but effeminate. But we needed to put together a collection of those passages and a vision for men to see that Christ is incredibly masculine. Um, I actually, the subtitle of the book is How the Masculinity of Jesus Eradicates Effeminate Christianity. Mm-hmm. And if we have an if we have a masculine savior, we'll have a masculine church. But if we have an effeminate savior, we'll have an effeminate church, and that's absolutely what we have right now with yeah. the mm-hmm. music that we have, with the the way that pastors dress on stage, with the spinelessness that comes with not standing up for the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It really is a problem that we have in yeah. the church today. Let's talk about the courage of Jesus. I know you bring that out in your book, The Manliness of Christ. And, you know, I just got to share this. I, I think that the most courageous words in all of human history are found in John 14. This is my favorite. I'm going to ask you to comment as well. Jesus is about ready to take on all of the demons from hell as he approaches his suffering and his death. And he turns to his disciples in the upper room and says, hereafter I will not talk much with you for the prince of this world come. Uh, 
and has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. He's, he's, he's going out to battle. He's going to conquer the devil and sin for us on the cross forever for us and to, to rise from the dead and overcome the enemy of death for us. Uh, that's yeah. courageous. That's really courageous. That's ultimate well, courage. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, again, it's so easy to pass over statements like that. Because yeah. You just go, Oh, that's what Jesus was supposed to do. So he did it. Great. Um, and so, you know, there's another statement in Matthew 20 verse 18, where Jesus says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, you know, it's just seven words, right? Yeah. It's just at face value. They're yeah. not unique or extreme. But powerful. Um, mm. But what, what's really going on here is Jesus is on his way to the cross. Now, one, he's omniscient, meaning that he knows that he's going to the cross. He also knows the full weight of what he's going to experience. So it's not just a brutal physical death, but also the absolute suffering of the sins of the world and the wrath of God, which no man can handle uh, Mm -hmm. but Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And so so there's Mm -hmm. this absolute insane reality that's coming towards him. He's just going, like, he knows in the fullness of what's going to happen. And he says to his disciples, behold, we're going to Jerusalem. And it says that he was walking out in front of them. Hmm. And this is this is important to note because the Jew, the disciples are sitting there probably going, I don't want to go to Jerusalem because I know we're probably going to get killed or you know imprisoned. Jesus knows that he's going to get killed and he's going to take on the wrath of God and he's going to die mm-hmm. the most brutal death known to man. And yet he's he's telling them we're going. Yeah. And he's out front walking fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he's he's in front of them. There's an element of resolve there, deliberation, intentionality, courage, all of that, all of that. Uh, I mean, you you think that the guys in Normandy were brave? Mm-hmm. No, um, no, no. And, and, you know, <laughs> yes, those are those are obviously elements of bravery we're mm-hmm. seeing there. But this is at a whole different category of extremeness. And, and so when you see that, and and then when you also recognize that. That capability for Christ to have that type of courage and resolve, God saw fit to make him male to handle such a ministry. Th- and, and so there's a maleness category or, or element here that's so vital that God made men uh, specifically with testosterone, with with uh, the, the frame that we have as as uh, in our physiology, with the mental capacity and the structure that we have and our hormones, all of this to handle things like this. And it's important to recognize that Christ is not male and female in one and with a male body. That's not what he is. No, he is a man mm-hmm. um, with male uh, biology. Do you think it's fair to say that undermining the courage of Christ undermines the power of the gospel message itself? I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's there's an element of why did Christ go to the cross? Well, it's for his love for us. It's for his obedience to the Father. It's because it was foreordained before the foundation of the world. All of that. There's, mm-hmm. there's several reasons mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Christ goes to the cross. But when we see that 
Christ is is not just gentle and lowly, but absolutely bold and intense and resolved and courageous in a way that made the disciples very uncomfortable. Um, And then when we see that his capability for being all such things was in part due to the fact that he was a male, we can start to see that being a man is good Mm -hmm. Um, and that God designed the Savior as a man capable of carrying out his ministry uh, because of, in part, his maleness, obviously in part because of his sinlessness, and obviously in part because of his divinity. But the reality is, is that he's, he's a male. And so there's some beauty there uh, that we can capture for the family uh, as men, as husbands that are looking to love our wives as Christ loved the church, that we can follow in those steps and see that we do have a very masculine a very intense, a very courageous, a very bold, a very resolved That's savior. Right. That's right. Amen. Let's talk again about the feminine church, the the weak church. And I guess I would say there's a romanticism that comes from the romantic era, especially, you know, you get into the rock and roll generation, which is romanticism on steroids. Um you get into this romanticism and you know, this weak romanticism in the church needs to be rejected by both men and women. Wouldn't you say, I mean, it's not just men, women should be equally irritated by it. Yeah. So I've, I've studied Greek. I've done my exegetical Greek classes. Um, The NASB in the 95 or the LSB, both are really probably the most accurate English translations. They are sometimes harder to read because they're a little bit wooden in a word-for-word translation of Scripture. But 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 through 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, right. nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor right. drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Malakoi, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. This, this, yep. Yep. Yeah, this term here, uh, effeminate, really means the perversion of natural gender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yes, we, we have um, an effeminate church that has put on a pedestal some sort of softness because emotionalism and pietism have become king. Because we have a, a, a gospel that has become so about m- me and my relationship with Jesus, it's kind of me, my Bible, and Jesus Christianity. There's no there's no kingdom thinking. There's no um, great commission thinking. There's no uh, conquering thinking. There's no um, taking dominion over uh, uh, over the earth through righteousness in the land. There, it becomes this self-experienced Christianity. And those who have the most intense experience, emotional experience, become the most, quote, mature. And and so mm. we have this weird obsession with with uh, effeminacy. Now, women, which is different than feminism or uh, uh, femininity. Femininity is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, effeminate is is a bad thing because it's a perversion or distortion of what is true um, regards to ge- in regards to gender. And so we are in this weird time right now where we're trying to 
remember what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, um, what is good, what is bad, what is, quote, toxic, and what is not. And um, I think that the only way we can come up with definitions of those terms is by looking at what the scriptures say, and for men specifically, looking at Christ, who is the ultimate expression of manhood. Let's talk about liturgy or cliches that are used often in the church. You know, a lot of churches say we don't have a confession of faith. We don't have liturgy, but you actually do. You just have these cliches you repeat over and over again, hundreds of thousands of times. But so much of it are unbiblical, oftentimes soft words. You think of preaching versus sharing. I hear another another uh, cliche, let God do this or that, as if, you know, we're going to let God do something. Or I feel like, I feel like, I feel like, I, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like. This kind of language is constant. I mean, you've heard it before. You've heard these things. Oh, yeah. It's also, you know, uh, share your heart. Yeah. You know, right, um, right, right. There, there's mm-hmm. this weird collection of, again, feminine cliches um, that have made men go, I don't want to be a part of that at all. Um, It's a hyper-emotional let go and let God, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, the the hedge of protection, you know, like weird biblical phrases that are weird phrases that aren't biblical that we've adopted. And so, yeah, it's permeated into the language. It's permeated into um, our programs. It's permeated into our music. It's permeated into the preaching. Um, it's it's losing its authority. It's losing its uh, effectiveness. It's losing its um, dominating power because we've made God's words into man's ways. And and so we do need to get back to a masculine uh, Christianity. I, in my opinion, I, I really believe that masculine Christianity is what attracts everybody else. Uh, so if you win the men, you win the women, and you win the children. The, the, the answer can't be a superficial male machismo, though. So No, uh, tell of us, course not. Yeah, tell us what that looks like, if you can, biblically speaking. Well, we have a masculine Savior, so we need a masculine church. Now, if, if a woman's listening to this and is offended by that, um, the, the reality is, is that we, we are to be following Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that a, we have to recognize that being gentle and lowly is also masculine, mm-hmm. right? Because Jesus shows us that, that he is gentle and lowly. But it, again, we can't have a one-dimensional Jesus. You know, when we look at churches today, like strong churches that are faithful and fruitful, um, you know, some that are even cross-denominational, from preachers that are like Paul Washer or Vody Bauckham or John MacArthur or you know, even guys that are uh, maybe on the outside of, of kind of the, the typical guy, but Doug Wilson, mm-hmm. um, who I, I personally respect. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a lot of guys that are following those men. And when you get men like that, who I, I would say are, are really Christ-like men, A-type leaders, um, alpha male type things, they're not the beta males, right? Mm-hmm. Hillsong, you know, Elevation prosperity, charismatic, emotional, you you get a lot of the beta males and they attract all the women. But again, when you go to these other churches that are very masculine churches, meaning that they are protectors, they're providers, they're shepherds, 
There you um, go. They're that's good. They're they're guarding. Good. They're loving. Good. They're sacrificing. Good. good. Mm-hmm. You know. That's it. All, all of that. That's is it. So vital. That's it. Those are the words. You know, not the superficial mil machismo, but those all those words. Now let's get back to Matthew eleven. That one verse. I am soft and tolerant and squishy of heart. Take my yoke upon you. We, we know that's not the translation, but I'm just not sure that we have properly exegeted the word praus, which is the word translated gentle in just about every modern translation. Strength under control is, is typically the translation that uh, commentators have used for hundreds of years. Yeah, meek. That, yep. you know, the, the idea of meekness or gentleness Praus, it's the Greek word praus, has to do with a, a power, a power, but under control. Here's the way I have put it. I put it as a calibrated, uh, automated robotic arm that can squeeze into a wine glass without smashing it and pick up a 500-pound weight at the same time. In other words, gentleness is able to calibrate the amount of pounds per square inch force when handling the wine glass or the 500 pound weight you you follow me here there is an ability to calibrate it's strength under control it's not this weak meekness that i think people think of now when they think of the word gentle it seems to me we need to dig back into the greek word there yeah um yeah i'm thinking about this quote uh that i heard recently uh, let's see, where is it? I'm trying to find it here. On, I think Jordan Peterson originally said it. You know, not not not, a, not exactly the greatest exegete of scripture. Nevertheless, sure. he, at least he's got a, a, a idea of what's wrong with the world. Yeah, but he he says, um, well, this is the problem, right, guys? Is that you know what the church is turning? The church is turning to to Peterson, to Shapiro, to Matt Walsh, to Jocko, to all, all the men who aren't in the church because we have so many spineless men in the pulpit. Mm, And so we have no men to turn to in the church because there are so very few of them that are actually preaching practical theology for life right now that is congruent with scripture, that is deeply theological, that is doctrinally backed. And so we're, we're lacking that in such a great way that we are actually having men in the church turn outside the church to find instruction on manhood. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, we're actually working on a project. Um, I'll read you this Peterson quote in a second. Um, uh, we're working on a project. I, I, uh, years ago, I bought the domain manhood.org. Um, and it was fairly expensive, but I thought, you know what? I do not want somebody else to buy this and distort it and pervert it okay. and, and redefine manhood by any means. And we are going to start uh, some sort of a, uh, a, a an organization, a conference, a movement that really helps bring clarity, biblical clarity, and not the historical kind of servant leader, soft manhood that I think it was a part of the, uh, you know, soft complementarian uh, view of the past 30 or 40 years. Because complementarianism, I think, still is really just another form of egalitarianism that the church just accepted. Um, I do think that what the scriptures teach is biblical patriarchy. Now, not patriarchy in the way that the world wants to pervert it and contort it, but biblical patriarchy, meaning that 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 men are that Eve was created for man, and not 
man created for Eve. And that a woman is here to serve and support her husband and helping fulfill the mission that God has on their life together. And there's some beauty in that. Obviously, we understand uh, that Christ came. You know, for example, if the church doesn't uh, contribute um, to Christ's ministry, Christ is leading out that ministry and we are supporting him in that way. And so there's, there's an element that Christ is that biblical patriarch for us and godly men are to, to mimic that, to follow that example. Um, it's when we go off the ditch on either side is when it gets ugly. And so um, men need to, to really have a strong biblical understanding and definition of what it means to be a man. And, um, and so we're, we're going to attempt to bring some of that clarity there. Um, but yeah, when you look at this idea of Jordan Peterson, he says, a harmless man is not a good man. He says, a good man is a very, very dangerous man who has that under voluntary control. There it is. is that's, what you, that's the prowess thing. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you just said, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's that mm-hmm. we're not trying to be weak men. No, we're trying to be very, very dangerous men who has that under control. But there is times where men need to be dangerous. Right. Uh, if you're any, know anything about war, if you know anything about protecting your family, if you know anything about standing up for truth or taking on uh, you know, the things and, and the, 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 the blowback of the world, um, that's what men are for. And we are to shield and protect our, our families, our, our daughters, our wives, our, our, our sons. And so there's a real beautiful thing. See, I think that a lot of men have evacuated Christianity because American Christianity is just weak. Let, 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 me, let me bring in the word love one more time because I think this is so fundamental to a right view of the church and right view of everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We are to be examples of love. We are to lead in love in the family and the church. Leaders in love. But what is love? Love is to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't set one against the other. The heart against the mind or the mind against the heart. The Psalms do penetrate the heart of emotion or affection or disposition, but not the shallow emotion of senseless romanticism. It involves grieving over sin. It involves rejoicing over the conquering of the enemy, the crushing of the dragon's head by the seed of the woman. Uh, and, and we don't want to present the real Christian life as a feel-good faith, but more of a rough and tough battle, faith in the fire, hope in the storm, joy in the cauldron of trial, loving God in the battlefield as we come face to face with the fire-breathing dragon himself. We want practical application in the sermon. We want doctrine, good, yep. solid, hard doctrine, rational teaching, addressing the antithesis with the thesis, casting down imaginations, 60-minute sermons, 15 minutes of song, not the other way around. <laughs> that kind of thing. Try, trying to describe a church or a church ministry that, does, that better conveys a scriptural concept of love and men leading in love. Yeah, you know, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. It's good. It's good. Right. The, 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 the idea is we are fighting as men. Um, yes, we have an enemy in front of us. We have a wicked, uh, we have a wicked world. We have flesh. We have uh, the enemy himself. Um, we have sin in our lives and we have sin in the world. We have dirty and nasty politics that are going on. 
Um, but we're fighting um, because of love. And, you know, I often tell people, you know, great way to love your neighbor is to vote for politicians who love God. It's a great way to love your neighbor because you don't want to put your neighbor under the rule of wicked men uh, or women. Um, you know, a great way to love your neighbor is to not let it become legal to kill your baby. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, a great right. way to love right. to love yeah. your neighbor is to to fight against the the false definitions of marriage and transgenderism and homosexuality that are permeating every possible area of our life. It's a great way to love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And, and so right. we, we do these things not because we hate the people and the proponents of of sinfulness. No, no, no. We actually we love those individuals so much that we're going to tell them that it's wrong according to God's ways That's and right. God's law and God's word. And That's so right. mm-hmm. the motivation needs to come absolutely from love. And, um, and that's how our preaching should be, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the gospel is obviously the, the forefront weapon. You know, um, American Christless conservatism is not going to solve this problem. The gospel is going to solve the problem. And it's yeah. the tip of the spear. And we need to make sure that we're out there, not just talking about social issues, not just talking about doctrine and theology, but actually proclaiming the gospel. And so, um, you, you know, I always think about, you know, if, if you want to change culture, you need to change hearts. If you want to change hearts, you need the gospel. And so um, the gospel is the first and for, foremost uh, weapon that we have. But at the same time, it's not the only thing that we do. We don't run to the cross and stay there. No, we, we, we take the cross with us and we go and we turn also to the reality of, of talking about um, the moral law of God, the righteousness of God, the things that need to be proclaimed in society. So these are very, very important elements in addition to the gospel. Dale Partridge has been my guest today. The Manliness of Christ, new book, available relearn.org. His website, again, relearn.org. I get the sense that this is a word in season, that this is the word in season for us. I know it's been a challenging message, but friends, I encourage you to chew on it. It's food for thought. I'm challenged. You're challenged. We need to think through this. God is calling us to repentance and to reformation of the church and the family and our conception of gender and our conception of the gospel and our conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dale Partridge, my guest today on Generations. Dale, thanks. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, Food for thought. We appreciate what you've done here. Thanks so much for having me. This is Kevin Swanson inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.